Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 462 with Pam McLean. We are talking about how your inner landscape and self-awareness picture impacts what you're able to do in leadership and impacting others. You'll learn, one, the most common obstacle to developing your leadership potential, two, how to address self-limiting beliefs, and three, the most critical internal areas to develop. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F462. And you could also simply tap in the episode description there to tap that directly with fewer taps than A-W-E-S-O-M-E at your job, right? You could just tap in the episode notes or details or description in your podcast app player and tap it to capture it that way. Same thing with our sponsors. That's pretty cool. Now, here's Pam's story. Pamela McLean is the CEO and co-founder of the Hudson Institute of Coaching, which provides consulting to organizations worldwide, working in the arenas of clinical and organizational psychology and leadership coaching and development. Pam has worked with hundreds of organizational leaders and seasoned professionals inside organizations and in solo practice to deepen and strengthen their coaching skills. Pam is the author and co-author of several books, articles, and white papers focused on coaching, human development, and transformational learning. Her titles include the completely revised handbook of coaching. Coaching and Life Forward, Charting the Journey Ahead. Big thanks to Pamela for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Pam. Pam, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. So happy to be with you. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom. And I first want to hear a little bit about your fondness for bird watching. <laughs> That's great. Well, I've been a bird watcher for a long time. And it is interesting that there are a lot of bird watchers in the world. It turns out I grew up on the prairie, uh, right on the border of Manitoba up in the corner of North Dakota, Minnesota. And and when one grows up on a farm on the prairie, the appreciation for wildlife is accentuated. And I've just carried that through all of my life. Oh, cool. And so can, you can identify the birds then readily? Like that's a yellow-tailed, blue belly. I, I mean, <laughs> I I, there are, there's always room for improvement, but I, but I do have a repertoire that I can identify. Yes. That's good. Well, bird watching it seems like a, a relaxing hobby, you know, as opposed to, I don't know, bungee jumping. Um, Much as, more <laughs> relaxing. And, and it's everywhere. You don't have to go find a bungee jump. There are birds everywhere. So it's a wonderful thing. Mm hmm. Well, so I, I'm intrigued. So you've also done a lot of uh, human watching and observing yeah. and, and coaching and, and mm -hmm. training of coaches. So yeah. um, boy, there, there's so many things I want to dig into, but I'm just going to start big and ask. Coaches really have a, a privileged way of and view, I'd say, of, of the human condition and uh, how, how we really operate deep down. So I'd love to know you know, what have you found is the most surprising or striking or, or reliable insight into how we humans tick that you've discovered from all your decades of coaching and coach training? Great, great question. Definitely a broad one. There's several things that come to my mind. Uh, 
One is in the world of coaching, especially leadership coaching, which is really what, what I have spent uh, the last 30 years in uh, here at, at, at Hudson. Uh, it, one theme is that almost all leaders want to do their best work. They want to be at their best. So that's uh, quite something to work with people who are uh, willing to continue to grow and, and develop. That is, I think, one of the unique features of leadership coaching. Another one that is interesting, Peyton, and I, I spent my first half of my career as a clinical psychologist and, and then uh, now as a leadership coach or a, running a leadership coaching organization. And one of the other things that, that I see as a theme is that change is hard for all of us that uh, to make a change, uh, even what might seem like a small change, takes a lot of conscious effort. And that is part of what makes coaching valuable, uh, to have someone walking alongside you and, and uh, helping to look at how, how you can build some practices and, and continue to make some shifts that are really going to matter for you. But it strikes me, the longer I've been doing this, the more impressed I am with how hard it is for most of us to make a change, even when we want to, even when we know it would be good for us. That, that our natural inclination is to live in habit, to uh, live in the routines that, that we know well, even when we're not very happy with them. You know, I'm reminded of the oddest thing sometimes in, in the podcast interviews. And now I'm thinking about an old Dane Cook a comedian joke about someone in a bad romantic relationship. And her friends are saying, you should just get out. You should just get out of there. Just get out. What's wrong? Just go. And she's like, well, it's not that simple, Karen. My CDs are in his truck. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think there's so much truth to that. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, there's a few changes Beautiful. that have to happen, and that's hard to do. Yeah, um, that's right. And, and so, I, I, and I find that reassuring. So, you know, our, my last person I interviewed was a Navy SEAL, and so uh, mm -hmm. he was sort of speaking likewise about how, yeah, that, that's that's a scary thing to do, stand up comedy for the first time. You know, mm -hmm. as as he was venturing into this or that, and so it's reassuring that even sort of like the toughest, you know, uh, and most elite among us uh, also are, mm -hmm. struggle with doing change. And I guess I, I might want to get your take on why do you suppose it is? So there's just habit and comfort is just has a pull on us. And well, yeah, I think that's right, that it does have a pull on us. And we know from the neurosciences as well that that we build these, uh, we could almost think of them as like grooves in our brain that that are we're on autopilot when, when we're in habit. And, and so if I'm going to shift my way of being, here's a kind of common one that might come up in, in coaching. I'm just thinking of as it. You know, as an early manager, here's one that can be common, that someone goes, oh, gosh, I don't really want to give my my person feedback because it makes me kind of uncomfortable. I'd, I'd, I'd like to be liked. I haven't really done much of it before. And so to rewire, to see that providing feedback to someone that you're managing is actually an important part of developing them and everybody wants to grow. Uh, that's quite different than uh, the mindset that I might make them feel badly or that would be uncomfortable for me to do. So it, it takes us quite a bit of time to deconstruct what gets in the way to really look at what the underlying obstacles are and uh, to pay attention to them. There's this tendency that we have when we want to change something and we look at what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Just give me the answers. Tell me what to do. And what we know in coaching is that what we need first is to notice how we are now how I'm showing up now and, and to really uh, become, develop a heightened awareness for the habit that I'm living. Here's one that I hear often is people talk about uh, how often uh, they say yes before even thinking. And we often talk about in uh, working with coaches and development that 
when we learn to say no, we know how to set a boundary, and that becomes important for us in our work with others. And but but it's not as simple as going, oh, I say yes all the time, so let me just start saying no. First, we have to notice how many times in a day do I say yes, and what happens? What's the cost of that? What what triggers that? So the notion that self that awareness is uh, actually helps us create change is often overlooked in the change process. That awareness is self-correcting if we attend to it carefully enough. I think that's powerful for us to consider. But you know, but it really is because I think that's dead on in terms of okay, what do I need to do? Is uh, a natural question, and particularly for me, one of my top strengths is activator. It's like, all right, let's go do it, make it happen. Yeah. And so, but that awareness strikes me as really a potent means of accelerating change because you start to get emotional and visceral and real yes. about it. It's yes. not like, yes, I say yes too much and that's bad and I should say no more. Right. Uh, okay, that, that's one thing intellectually as opposed to, oh my gosh. I have taken stock at how this is devastating my life and not to be overdramatic. I mean, it really can, yeah. you know, it's like, yeah. I have no time to, to rest, to do what's important to me. I'm always, you know, serving everybody in, uh, in every way and, and urgently and frantically and distractedly with, with, you know, mediocre quality, you know, because I, I haven't said no enough to prioritize and focus and, and deliver excellence on those things that really matter there. So I really like that because I, some might say awareness they could sort of, you know, brush it aside, like, oh, yada, 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 you know, those coaches would say that, you know, they could, they could book some more hours if right. they drudge up your, your past and, and the awareness. But really, I see it as a bridge to, to get that emotional stuff going. Well, you make such a great point because we can't think ourselves through change and we have to have the head and heart connected uh, to make those connections. We have to be in the moment with ourselves, paying attention to ourselves, noticing what triggers us. So I, you're spot on there. Absolutely. Well, I, I really want to dig in. So, so in your book, Self as Coach, Self as Leader, you sort of lay out six key dimensions to think through with regards to yourself and, and how that uh, shows up as, as leader and, and enriches folks. So I'd love it if maybe you could talk us through a little bit of, of each of the dimensions, like what is it, why is it important, and how do we yeah. get better at that? Yeah. Happy to. And I might start by giving it a little bit of context to say that we, in the life of a leader or a coach, we know we have skill-based competencies that are must-haves. It's kind of like our IQ is the cost of admission. That's just a must-have. But often, most often, what truly makes us effective is the way that we show up. And I, I use this phrase, the, our use of self. When we do many things at Hudson, working inside uh, organizations, providing coaching services, and we also uh, have a year-long program where leaders come and go through uh, this process of, of developing uh, coaching skills, often leaders will say, oh, I just want the tools. Mm-hmm. I just I just want the tools and I, I think I'll be good. And and we go, oh, here's the deal. The most important tool is you. So our our ability to use ourselves, right? It requ- be a tool, <laughs> it, requi- it requires that we cultivate our internal landscape. And and some of us are more inclined to do this. Some fields of study uh, bring us into this territory more than others. But it is in that cultivation of our internal landscape, whether we're a coach or a leader, that that really allows us to to show up in a way that that, uh, maximizes our ability to work with others, to inspire others, to lead others, to develop others. And so what, one of the things I start with in the book is I talk a bit about this notion that while in coaching, our work is not the same as in psychology or psychotherapy, where we might naturally go back and and take a look at the family of origin and, and do some deconstruction and some reconstructing. And yet what is true is that 
all of us human beings have some kind of a family of origin and that who we are is so significantly impacted by our early years. And so it's helpful for us as leaders and coaches to understand what has uh, shaped us into our adult years. And that, of course, parallels some of what we do, certainly what we do as a coach when we're working with, with someone. If you just imagine that some people might call our ways of being, a, we have self-limiting beliefs. You hear this, right? Mm-hmm. And others might say that, that we have narratives that we live in, or I often talk about uh, stories that, that we have. And I talk in the book about how a story that I have that is a lifelong story. I grew up on a cattle ranch in, in a very rural area. There was a lot of positive strokes for being strong and absolutely extra credit for never asking for help. And so that was a story. It, it worked so well as I was growing up. Uh, and that's how we develop these. We're, we're uh, smart, resourceful little people. And, and we figure out what do we need to do? Maybe if I go small, it'll work better in my family. Or if, maybe if I talk a lot, it'll work better. Or maybe if I cry, it'll work. You know, we, but we, we figure out what, what ways of being we need to develop in order to make life work as best it can in my family, because all families have some level of dysfunction, right? So my be strong and extra credit for not asking for help was clever when I was growing up. But as a leader of an organization, which is a role I've been in for, you know, over a couple of decades now, it's not an effective strategy. And so it has required me to really be attuned to that old story and to do my work noticing how often that can show up in order that I can expand my capacity, in order that I can see the value of asking for input, asking for help, and I can see the cost of going it alone. And so that is a a starting point for the work. And, And in those six dimensions that I write about, they are really lenses into our internal landscape. We've talked for a long time, and in the in an earlier book I wrote, I talked about this uh, notion of self as coach, but I really dig into it in this book and say, so these are dimensions of self. It's, it's more than EQ. Uh, EQ is about, you know, knowing our emotions, managing our emotions, but, but these are dimensions that include our presence. I have this uh, colleague that says this wonderful phrase, our presence is an intervention. Now imagine that as a leader or as a coach, the very way I show up in the first moments with you is an intervention. And so to hone my presence for most of us, and certainly in the world we're living today in today, requires a lot of practice. And it's not just closing the screen, putting your cell phone away. It's paying attention to the chatter that's in my head, uh, the, the biases or the assumptions that I might bring with me into a particular conversation as a leader or as a coach. It has many layers to it, and it requires for us practices that allow us to strengthen our presence. And, you know, it's not surprising that neuroscience uh, has taught us that uh, mindfulness practice helps us tune in to the internal chatter, helps us uh, learn how to settle and, and, and to be in the moment and, and to be present. And, and I don't know, Pete, if you have a mindfulness practice, but every time I'm with a group of people and I ask, how many, how many of you have a mindfulness practice? First of all, the number of people in any number of settings has grown so much over the past several years. And then when, when you ask the next question, how has that changed you? It's quite compelling to listen to people talk about how a practice that might only take five or ten minutes a day, you don't have to sit on a pillow, you don't have to have your your meditation room or a candle burning, you can do it at your desk with the door closed, Uh, you can do it as you walk if you're uh, able to, to do that, that it changes our attention to self and our ability to be there uh, more fully for another. So that's one area is, is presence. 
Well, well, that's great. Thank you. And, and with this, the mindfulness practice, I mean, there's many such practices, but if you were to make a recommendation for folks who have none, and by the way, what, what percentages are you seeing these days? What, what proportion of folks well, are saying? Well, I, I, so I, I may be working with uh, many people who are quite invested in their own development. So when I say 40%, that's probably higher than, than the average. But I'm, I'm always uh, impressed by how many people are, are taking this on. And, you know, there are some really great apps on the phone that are helpful for for those who want to just dip into it. And uh, I don't have my phone sitting right here, or I would tell you a couple. I think one is Calm, but there, there are three or four that are quite well-known, quite effective. Uh, some of them cost absolutely nothing. Insight is the one that I think I like, Insight. But they're a great support. Okay, cool. So that, that's the present side of things. You know, just how you show up can impact folks, be it intervention, you know, whether you're frenetic and frenzied or, or, or calm and listening and uh, that sort of thing. So let's uh, shift over from presence to empathy now. Yeah. So empathy is such an important one in, in coaching. It's our glue in the field of psychology that you often hear about the term, a working alliance. We have to have this connection with the person that we're working with in order for anything to happen, for conversations that matter to unfold. It provides that safety. It provides that sense of being seen. And it is bedrock in our work. And what I talk about in the book is that we could imagine there's a continuum. And on the one end of the continuum, I almost disconnected from the human being in front of me. I don't see when you're having a, a difficult moment or, or maybe tearing up or, or getting frustrated. I, I just don't clock that. I don't connect in that way. And at the far end, the other end of the continuum, when you feel badly, I feel badly. When you're upset, I'm upset. And so this empathy uh, requires a calibration because neither end of that continuum allows us to be at our best with another. But I use this phrase, uh, the ability to walk in someone's shoes without wearing them. So the ability to imagine what this experience is like for you without taking it on, without taking it home, and at the end of the day, continuing to think about it, worry about it, wonder about it. And so to take another's perspective, to walk in their shoes without lacing them up and, and staying there, that is where we want to be calibrating our empathy. And it's so interesting for people to explore this and to notice where they might be and, and where the recalibration might be. And there's for some, a natural inclination to want to take care of others. I sometimes say it's like handing someone the box of Kleenex. You start to feel badly or you're upset. And if I hand you metaphorically the box of Kleenex, I really am now drawn into your story. And you're not able to fully uh, share all that you might want to share. So when so someone you're saying the handing of the box of Kleenex it's, is, it's is like, like a distancing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, like okay, take um, care of yourself now. Uh, yeah, that's up. enough. That's enough. That's <laughs> enough. Right. Okay. Uh, get yourself together or everything's uh, going to be OK. You know, we've all been in those situations where we're going through something that's hard. And even good friends will say, you know, you're really strong. You're going to be fine. Oh, I know that you're going to get through this. And it's a conversation stopper because that's not where I am at that time. And so having that, that ability to stay with, to connect with and be with uh, someone wherever they are, in many ways is a, a bit of an art for us and certainly requires that presence, that mindfulness to maximize that. Well, well that's, that's really helpful there in terms of, you know, don't say everything's okay, or you're going to be super strong or hand them a, a box of Kleenex and, and sort of in terms of sort of shutting it down, but do kind of imagine what it's like to experience that and to, and to yeah. be there, but without taking it home or to uh, own those shoes. So I get what we're going for here, you know, in yeah. terms of, okay, avoid those extremes, utterly disconnected and, and complete unity of feeling but how do you recommend one 
adjust. Like if, if we need to notch it up because we're utterly disconnected or we need to notch it down because we're crying and wrecked, you know, for mm-hmm. the rest of the day because we've had such a conversation with someone. How do we do that? Well, it's, I think we need input from others. So getting feedback and perspectives from others is always helpful. But there's a very interesting bit of work that is useful in empathy. And that is that notion that when we are able to take good care of ourselves, it increases our ability to be empathic. And it makes sense when you think about it. If I'm able to notice that I need to exercise some self-care, that there are some ways that I need to attend to my own needs, that when I can do that for myself, I might be in a better position to be there for another and be mindful of the connection that I have with another. So as I'm more mindful of my uh, and connected to myself, able to pay attention to what my needs are, it seems to impact our uh, empathic connection. Yes, and that makes sense both in terms of, okay, you're, you're exercising empathy to yourself and to another, as well as just the actual result of your self-care. Right. I, I, one of my favorite studies is, is about the, um, the seminarians who were learning about the Good Samaritan Bible story, and then they placed a Confederate person who was coughing and in need of help. But the seminaries didn't do too well with regard to helping out this person, like you might hope, even though that's going to be their jobs. And the, the main variable they were testing was those who were told they were behind schedule and had to rush and hurry up and, and, and get that assignment turned in, you know, helped far less than those who were in a, a calmer place and felt less stressed and more resourced to help out, you know, when, when someone was in need. And, and so I, I think that's, that's a sort of a double whammy with regard to that self-care. Yeah. And it's a great comment because you're really connecting presence and empathy. And in that story, I often say, you know, there are five minutes and there are five minutes. It's just a matter of the way that we show up and uh, get present and connected, right? Oh, that's so good. Those who are reading the transcripts are not going to capture the power (laughs) of what you just said, but it's hitting home for me. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Awesome. So, all right, we talked about presence and empathy. How about range of feelings? Yeah. So range of feelings is an interesting one that connects back to how our early years were. And this notion that most of us, I here's a story I tell in the book about, I have a colleague whose uh, early years, she was, uh, she's Italian. Uh, her parents were immigrants. Uh, they came to this country, opened a cafe in an urban area, an Italian restaurant and a large family, a lot of yelling and screaming and getting angry and getting happy. And, and you know, these emotions just came and went and it was all part of the general uh, course of any day. And I grew up in a Northern European family. My grandparents uh, came from Scotland. Uh, They were pretty buttoned down, never too happy, never too angry. And so these ways of being, the, the way that we grow up impacts our repertoire of feelings and the way that we judge some feelings. I like to say feelings are feelings. We are all human beings. There aren't good feelings and bad feelings, but rather we all have feelings. And as a coach and and as a leader, perhaps as well, in order to work with a broad range of people, we need to be at ease with a broad range of feelings. Mm -hmm. If If I am uncomfortable with anger and I am working with a client who's angry, I will not give much space for that to show up or I'll be very uncomfortable when it does. And the same can be said for tears or whatever it might be. So the work of a coach is so different than the work of a a dentist or an accountant. We have to have this work invested in expanding our repertoire so that we can work with this as many uh, different sorts of of people as possible. That totally makes sense. And uh, I I guess I'm just thinking about all kinds of situations where usually I'm visualizing stereotypically, I guess, a man who's strong and quiet and then they encounter crying. It's like, there's no crying in baseball, you know, right. or it, it's sort of like there's, there's no internal comfort with the feeling and, and thusly when uh, an, an outside person yeah. is, is emoting in that way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just 
uneasy. Like, oh, I want to get yeah. out of here immediately. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. How, how do you work on that? One thing I think is helpful is, again, back to self-awareness, is to do some monitoring around what my go-to feelings are, those ones I'm naturally at ease with, and those that are on my no-go list that I just don't like to go to. I think first building awareness of what my range of feelings is and where I might extend myself and and then finding those safe, small little steps to uh, step into that territory is is at least a good beginning. Well, now I'd love to get your quick take on the the menu of feelings uh, so that, you know, we might do a little bit of a checklist inventory there. I'm thinking well, about the movie Inside Out now, but how would you <laughs> lay out the, the array of feelings to see how well, the repertoire is? Yeah, so here's a general way I think of it is, again, a continuum where perhaps at, at the lowest level of feelings I might, or near, the, near that end edge, I might be working in that sphere of, you know, people used to talk about mad, sad, glad. And that as we go along that continuum, I'm really able to build a repertoire that's much broader than that. And more importantly, I'm able to understand and experience the reality that I can have two almost diametrically opposed feelings simultaneously, that it is possible for me to feel deep grief and joy at the same time. We're able to do this. And that, that as well, as I build my repertoire, I'm able to see and experience the reality that there are different levels of intensity of any one feeling. So when someone says I'm angry, that will mean something for you that might be different than for me. So we have to know what does that mean? You know, on a scale of one to five, how strong is that anger or that sadness or whatever it might be? So I think that in the world of coaching and certainly in leadership as well, for us to have a depth of understanding about the range of feelings, the intensity of feelings, the uh, possibility that feelings that seem contradictory can actually be overlapping and simultaneously experienced, that ability to really have a rich collection of uh, accessible feelings matters. Certainly. So, well, could you just for just for kicks, could you name a few? Well, I think that on the the list of feelings that we feel comfortable with, it's all of the I'm speaking cultural specific, perhaps here, but, you know, it's happy, it's joyful, gleeful, all, all of those kinds of things. And that the feelings that so often we don't like to go to are the anger, uh, the rage, the grief, the, uh, and the, the ones in between are the frustration, annoyance, right? I mean, the vocabulary is expansive in this area. I, I think what is most helpful for us, if we want to take this on, is to pay attention to what my repertoire is, what my, what my go-to feelings are uh, in my day-in and day-out life. And that helps us see where might I expand, where, where might I grow more capacity, Okay, thank you. And so think about the fourth area there, the, the boundaries and systems. Um, how should we think about that? So perhaps I'll just talk a little about systems uh, and we can have some fun with that. The, the notion that in the work of coaching and leading, to have a sense of our boundaries, how permeable our boundaries are, what happens when they're too tight or when they're, they're too porous. I have a wonderful friend, Pat Adson, who uh, talks about this metaphor that goes like this, that imagine that we both have a garden and your garden has a fence around it and a gate, as does mine. Yours has weeds, flowers, vegetables, as does mine. And that I look at your garden without asking permission. I walk in your garden and I start doing your weeding for you. I have now lost my boundary and I'm lost in your story. 
So imagine as a coach, you come to me and say, oh my gosh, I'm just up against the wall. I just found out that, that my whole department is being eliminated. I don't even have enough money for rent for next month. What am I going to do? And I go, oh, let me just think about this. I think I know someone who can do, I'm doing your weeding for you as opposed to being able to step back and go, so let's just stop for a minute and and see what's most important in this and, and, and be able to see this experience through the other's eyes and help them see it as opposed to uh, getting in and, and rescuing or colluding or whatever we might do when we walk in someone else's garden without permission. And this area is very... Uh, it's very subtle for a coach. For a leader, I think it so often comes in the form of hearing about a situation and instead of stepping back and asking some questions and thinking alongside someone, you move into telling someone what to do, just you know, giving them your answer and without any regard for what, what's unique about this for them. So this, this notion of boundaries turns out to be really critical in our ability to help someone uh, do their own growing uh, as opposed to wanting to do it for them. So many of these boundaries are, are just for your own behavior. <laughs> they, they are. They are. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> as opposed to, I'm not going to allow you to cross this boundary. It's like, I am not going to cross this boundary. Yes. Yes, that's uh-huh. right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, I was uh, talking to someone the other day in in the field of drug and alcohol, and we were having this great conversation about it. It's so glaring in in this that so often what becomes the, the biggest hurdle is in the family system, that collusion that continually rescuing someone. And if someone can hold a firmer boundary and and resist doing that, it allows the other to take the steps that are either going to lead to uh, growth or maybe take them to where they need to go before they decide that they're ready to make a change. Uh, so yeah, it's powerful territory for us. And, and, uh, some of us are more inclined than others to, uh, to want to help, to want to rescue. Uh, some of us are very uncomfortable when we see someone suffering and in order to manage ourselves or, or to help ourselves feel better, we run in for, with our cape and rescue instead of stepping back and helping someone see themselves. And, and so in that alcohol context, what are some of the behaviors of, of family members that are, are counterproductive, even though they, they think they're helping out? Well, I, I suppose it can take many, many forms uh, coming to the rescue often, I think coming to the rescue with with uh, financial aid or you know, any number of things that, that simply facilitate through that kind of collusion, um, no change. Right. So you sort of prevent the feeling of consequences, ramifications, right, yes. that rock bottom unpleasantness mm-hmm. that can can be mm-hmm. the, the force for change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so I, we could go all the way back to that story I told earlier about the early manager who has a hard time giving feedback. Uh, that because their boundary is uh, not yet developed and they worry they're going to hurt their feelings uh, or uh, something. So when when one's boundary gets stronger, we have the ability to stay in our own garden and help someone observe themselves or share observations or or offer feedback knowing that that, uh, this is a part of how we help people grow. Understood. Uh, and then how about embodiment? Yeah, so, you know, there's uh, this wonderful woman, uh, Wendy Palmer, who wrote a book called Leadership Embodiment. And she says, the way we sit and stand changes the way we think and feel. And I love that, you know, the, the notion that back to our earliest stories, that uh, if living in my family, it was smartest for me to play it small, and I bring this all the way into my adult years, and I want to have uh, people often talk in leadership development about executive presence. And yet, I've kind of my, my chest is a little caved in, and I'm not showing up as uh, fully there and strong and standing tall and taking up all of my space. The our embodiment, our ability to embody that which we are as as coach or leader. Uh, it is a powerful source of of strength for us and a way to center ourselves. We we are not living 
although many of us try from the neck up, right? We have an entire body. And so to be able to fully experience our body, to pay attention to the somatic triggers that show up, that help inform what might happen next, uh, and to uh, center ourselves fully in the moment, it helps us in every way that we've just talked about. It helps us be more present. It helps us connect with the other. It helps us tune into our own feelings, uh, and it helps us hold boundaries that are going to be more helpful in our work. Well, and I'd love it if maybe you could lay out, uh, again, a couple menu options, if you will, in terms of, boy, embodiment A, B, C, D, each create uh, dramatically different yet uh, helpful emotional states from which to operate. Yes, I think that there's one can have a lot of fun experimenting in this area. So certainly, even some of the martial arts can be a great way to uh, explore your body and, and to, to learn uh, how to live in your body from the head down to your feet, or, or a yoga might, uh, or a regular, uh, even a breathing exercise that we engage in. You know, three deep breaths that go all the way down to the belly. And, and that you slowly exhale. It is a way to get closer to what's happening with all of us and to get out of that tendency to be in our head. So it's uh, the wonderful thing is that our body is always here, <laughs> right? And, and so to be able to uh, really center ourselves fully is at our disposal every day. That's great. Well, courage, we've talked with a few guests recently about courage, but uh, I want to go six for six. What (laughs) do you have to say about courage? Well, I think that in the work of a a coach or a leader, courage is one of the big differentiators. And it connects to, in many ways, it's the culmination of everything we've talked about. So in coaching, it might be the courage to share an observation that is a little bit uncomfortable, but that you know the other cannot see. Uh, in leadership, it's certainly back to that early manager and all the way to a senior leader, the ability to to share feedback, uh, to share observations that are going to help somebody grow. Uh, so often uh, we live in a world that shrinks away from being courageous and people often say, well, how do I build my courage? And I, I think uh, we look at what are small acts of courage that we can engage in in, in our everyday life. Pick two or three and build a practice around that. The people that come, the leaders who come to coaches, uh, uh, come to coaches because there's something that they uh, they know is not working as well as they want it to, or there's something that is important for them to shift that they haven't been able to do on their own. And the reality for all of us is we can only see, we only have this, uh, the view of ourselves is a limited one. And in our work with another, uh, what a coach uh, can bring to that work is that which I can see. And when I am willing to share that, then something of meaning happens in this relationship. So if, for example, I'm coaching someone who wants to be recognized, who feels that every time they sit down at a senior team meeting, they are not taken as seriously as they want to be taken, or they're not listened to, uh, or that when it's their idea, nobody says anything, but when somebody else does, they go, oh, fantastic idea. And what you notice in the coaching, in the dynamics of the relationship, is that this person is, at every turn, in every conversation, highly deferential. Well, I'm not sure if this might be. And so for the coach to be able to say, I'm going to stop for a minute and share an observation. What I notice is how often blah, 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 right? And so that takes some courage for us. And that is one of the ways as coaches that we can really provide value for that leader. Well, Pam, this is so much good stuff. I want to make sure that we don't uh, have a uber long episode in responding to my listener feedback. <laughs> so tell me, is there anything else you really think is important for professionals to know about your, your world of coaching expertise before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? 
No, I, I think, you know, maybe maybe my final comment might be that what we're really talking about here are kind of meta skills that uh, have an enormous impact on how we uh, are able to uh, effectively uh, show up in our roles as as leader or coach. And there is no destination. This is a journey. We're always in development. All right. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Well, here's one. Uh, I have a colleague in the UK, Edna Murdoch, who has a quote. She says, who you are is how you coach. And that just uh, speaks so much, gets to the heart of this work on self as coach, that who we are is how we coach. It's how we lead. It's how we show up. And so we need to know who we are. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Well, so many different areas. I'm, uh, I think that in the world we're living in today, the work that's happening in neuroscience is particularly relevant for us to understand that the science of the brain, uh, the science of the body is more important than ever. And, and so I definitely dip into that regularly. And how about a favorite book? A couple that I'm crazy about recently. There's a book Tasha Yurik wrote, Insight. And oh, I, yeah, we it, had her on the show. It's fantastic. I think she's just she just hits it on the nail that, that we have to have this in- input from others to see all of ourselves. Another one uh, who would be great on your show is James Hollis, uh, who wrote uh, his most recent book, Living an Examined Life. Fantastic, a short read. And how about a favorite uh, tool, something you use that helps you be awesome at your job? Oh, my goodness. I don't know that I have a favorite that comes to mind, but I am pretty disciplined and uh, anything that holds me accountable is helpful in the area of tools. And what does hold you accountable? I have a practice at the beginning of each week, and I uh, do a sort of an uber practice at the beginning of each month to really spend time getting focused on what is most important, high level and and kind of medium level, and then in in the weeds. And I stay attuned to that as I go through my week to make sure that I accomplish what's most important. And how about a favorite habit? My favorite habit these days is I'm an early, very early riser. I And of course, the sun is coming out earlier at this time of the year. I love to go for a walk. I live on a at the kind of peak of a canyon. And so I go up to the very top and get to look out on the Pacific Ocean and walk all the way down. And that's just a beautiful habit. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with your audiences? I mentioned before that this uh, nugget that uh, colleague Dorothy Seminovich gave me years ago, and that is that our presence is an intervention. I do think that people resonate with that and that it reminds us that the way we show up in the first few seconds, that is uh, how we're seen by others. So uh, that one is one of my favorites. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Our website is uh, www.hudsoninstitute.com. There is as well, uh, when you go to that website, there is a special resource center for uh, self as coach, self as leader that has videos and worksheets and all sorts of resources. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Slow down and go inside and keep growing and stay committed to uh, your own development. All right. Pam, this has been so much fun. Thank you for for sharing this and and bringing yourself. It's just been a lot of fun, a lot of enrichment, and I really appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. I really appreciated Pam's take on the range of feelings in particular, because it's like, I think it's really true. We do have our go-to feelings, and there are certain feelings that make us uncomfortable. And we might just assume that everybody's that way, but they're really not. You know, I'm thinking about some some therapists who, you know, people cry and they maybe are are furious and, and yelling, and they're totally cool, not at all phased by that. And and I think that's intriguing just to zero in on what are the go-to feelings you end up at again and again and again. What are the feelings when other people express them? They make you kind of uncomfortable. And how are you going to get more comfortable with that so that you can you know be more present and helpful to people when they're in that spot? I find that my go-to feelings often tend to be sort of excitement, elation, like I'm making great progress, and then frustration, like, oh, I'm slowing down. 
this is slow and annoying and not going as fast as I want to. And then it gets kind of interesting when you, when I step back and go, oh yeah, there's a whole lot of other experiences and emotions that can be enjoyed. And even if it's not fun or pleasant, uh, it can sort of expand the the human experience and your connection with people. So that's a good one to chew on. I appreciate that. Hope you dug it too. That's Pam McLean with the wisdom, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F462. And don't forget, it's easier to check the show notes just by expanding your episode notes or details in whatever podcast player you're rocking, whether it's the Apple Podcasts or Overcast or one that I think is super cool and kind of underrated, but really awesome is Podbean. And one of the reasons I love Podbean is I can see all the people who follow a given podcast with their screen names. And then I can tap their screen name and see all the other podcasts that they follow. So if I want to see, hey, what are cool listeners of How to Be Awesome at Your Job also listening to, I could find that out in Podbean, which is, is pretty nifty. I don't think I've seen that anywhere else. Maybe I'm just out of the loop and not cool, but but Podbean really works and is is quick and easy and fun to, to play around and do that and, and kind of comment and get a little bit social with yourself. So Anyway, that was an aside <laughs> to, to say that you can check out the show notes by tapping uh, episode notes in many apps and Podbean is, is one such app. So I hope you punch subscribe in your podcast playing app of choice as well. If you do, you'll catch our next guest. It is Scott Jeffrey Miller. He is from Franklin Covey and boy, they are batting a thousand, the Franklin Covey guys. He is talking about how to turn your management messes into leadership successes. I hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.